0: If I can turn the engagement dial on our three and a half thousand people by 5%, if I can get them 5% more engaged or 5% more proud or committed to PWC, that will have so much more impact than if I work 25 hours a day, 366 days a year. So culture can absolutely transform and drive an organization if you get it right.
1: I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose, appreciating that when it comes to your vitality that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts, and of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. Welcome to In the Doctor's Chair, where today I'm looking forward to continuing conversations with managing partners and CEOs about leadership and organizational health and well-being while tapping into the future of work as we navigate the return to the office post-COVID-19. Fergal O'Rourke, Managing Partner of PwC Ireland, joins me today in the Doctor's Chair. As Managing Partner, Fergal is also a member of the PwC EMEA leadership team. Prior to being voted Managing Partner in 2015, Fergal was Head of PwC Ireland's Tax and Legal Services Practice from January 1, 2011. He played a major role in the Irish and global tax policy debate during that time and shared platforms with Irish and foreign politicians, as well as key OECD tax officials. From 2014 to 2020, Fergal was also a member of the board of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ireland, which is the leading representative body at both government and industry level for the more than 700 US companies based here in Ireland. As part of this role, he also chaired the Taxation Working Group and the Brexit Working Group. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. Fergal, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mark. Fergal, obviously the last 18 months or so, I mean, it's now September 2021, must have been extremely challenging for everybody working in PwC with the COVID pandemic. How do you feel this has impacted and affected how you lead?
0: It's really interesting, Mark, because it has been challenging, but, and and I probably using the wrong word here, exhilarating as well at times, because I suppose the pride I've got out of leading an organisation, what got us through the last 18 months was our people. Yes. And not just our people, but the resilience and the adaptability of our people. And every so often I'd hear a little vignette or a story from somebody about something they'd done to reconnect with their people or something they'd done to go above and beyond to make sure their client's needs had been met. And when I say exhilarating, yeah, there were evenings you'd go home, particularly early in the crisis, and you genuinely were looking at the ceiling at night thinking, okay, what will tomorrow bring? But they were balanced at times by moments of sheer joy where a client would ring and say, I've got to tell you this really positive story about what your people have done or something, or you'd hear some story about how one teammate had helped out another. So it really brought home to me that those companies that had invested in culture Mm over the good times were, and digital, but we can come back to that later. But those companies that had really invested in their people and culture were able to draw on that reservoir during the bad times. And that's what really, for me, highlights the difference between good companies and great companies.
1: Yes, that's a really interesting idea, Fergal, that idea of culture. I mean, from your perspective, you know, how does that play out in an organisation? Why is culture so important?
0: Oh God, I remember when I was in college and, uh you know, you'd be writing an essay on strategy and you'd write that, uh, I think it was Drucker said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yes. And I must have trotted it out about 20 times and, you know, in various essays. And it's not a really until you lead an organization or part of an organization, you really understand what that means. Because at the end of the day, you know, strategy are words on a page or they're numbers in a spreadsheet and they're a kind of a map of where you want to get to. But culture is what gets you there. Culture is the glue that binds. Culture is what differentiates one service organization from another. And it's, again, there's a huge amount about tone from the top when it comes to culture. But for me... I like to think I'm, I'm authentic. I like to think the person that you're talking to here is the same person if you were queuing for a coffee or if you if you met out for a walk or something, I'd be the very same. And I think very early on when I took over as managing partner in 2015, mm. I wanted to embrace a culture of transparency and openness with our staff. So, I, I, you know, I, I did a lot of one-to-ones and I remember talking to my predecessor, Ron Murphy, a great guy, and saying to Ron, you know, I'm going to do one-to-ones with all the staff. And he said, yep, yeah, I did those. And I said, you know, I'm going to take questions and he said, yeah, I used to do that too. And I said, yeah, but you know, when you ask people to put up their hands, not many used to put up their hands. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm going to let people text their questions in. And he goes, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. And I said, and the questions are going to be anonymous. And he goes, okay. And I said, and they're going to come up in a big screen behind me when I'm talking. And he says, are you really sure about this? And the first time I did it, it was a bit of a high wire act. You know, what what was going to pop up on the screen behind you? But it actually, people embraced it. And people saw I wanted to be transparent and open. And they responded in kind. And for me, I remember the second time I did it, somebody put up their hand and said, do you think our trainees are paid enough? And the first thing I said was, I'm delighted you felt you were able to put up your hand and ask that question. Uh, you know, without having to resort to an anonymous text. So I, culture is massively important. I think it, it shapes. And I was a, somebody who probably 10 years ago would have said, if you brought me something, I'd say, leave it there on my desk and I'll get around to it. Now, as I've evolved as a leader, I'm more saying, look, if I can turn the engagement dial on our people by are three and a half thousand people by 5%. If I can get them 5% more engaged or 5% more proud or committed to PWC, that will have so much more impact than if I work 25 hours a day. 366 days a year. So culture can absolutely transform and drive an organisation if you get it right. Fascinating. And
1: and Fergal, have have you seen that? Have there been leaders that have inspired you along the way? I mean, you seem to really embody culture and leadership in terms of action, speaking louder than words. Where has that come from, in your opinion?
0: Ah, I, I think we're all an amalgam of hopefully good habits that we picked up along the way and, and good experiences we picked up along the way. And um, I, I remember working for a partner years ago, Tygo Donahue, and he said, "Ah, in this organization, it's monkey see, monkey do. And, you know, I think we, we mirror a lot of behavior as seen. I, you know, I, I would have to credit my parents with a lot, you know, when you're growing up. It's only when you become a parent yourself, you realize how much your, your own parents put into you. But I think they instilled great values with me and, you know, uh, of, of kind of hard work and, and a love for education. My father left school at 16, but he was hugely keen that I would get a degree, qualify as a chartered accountant. And I think if you're brought up with the right values. And then I worked for people in the organization. I had a, a boss. Who was a brilliant boss, Maureen Gutkin? She was a pioneering woman partner in her day. I had a mentor in the office, a, a guy called Tom Grace. He played rugby for Ireland. He was a yeah a bit older than me, but Tom was great. He he gave me advice, but it was dispassionate. And 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 I'll, I'll talk about Tom later on. But it, it's great to have a mentor. It's great to have somebody who will dispassionately talk to you about your pros and cons, your careers, what you could do, what you might do. I admire people in business like Gary McGann, who's crystal clear in his thinking, very high standards, very high ethics. I admire entrepreneurs like Michael O'Leary or Paul Coots. And so I, I think you're an amalgam for a lot of people, but it's I, I, I love people with passion for what they do, who have a real passion and a belief. And, you know, people ask me sometimes, young people, you know, what do you need to do to get ahead in PwC? I always say to them, look, to get in the door in PwC, you've proven you're super smart. But there's a, there's a little bit more you've proven to get in. There's a spark to it. There's something you've shown outside your pure academics. Maybe it's a society you're involved in or a club or a sport or something else you've done. And I, I think people in our organization, if you show intellectual curiosity, if you're kind of curious and want to learn more, if you want to better yourself and be the best person you can be. And if you have a passion and enthusiasm about that, there is no limit to how far you go. That that passion and enthusiasm differentiates people, and you can see people walking around. Even you can see people who are walking around with that sense of purpose and passion. And you know, I'm I'm a big sports fan of a lot of sports. You know, I'm not a Liverpool supporter, but you watch Jurgen Klopp on the sidelines for these managing Liverpool. He has a passion about the club that you know it just flows through every fiber of his body. And and Joe Smith, I got to know Joe Smith a lot when he was here as the Irish coach. A huge time for Joe. A focus on X ex- Excellence in everything he did you know an absolute understanding of what culture was about and you know culture in a way is is what you do when people are watching and it's what you do when people aren't watching that's, that's the essence of it you know
1: Yes and it really is
0: it's all about the little things as well Virgil making a big difference Hugely and you learn I, I always I always remember early on uh in my literally um, in my first couple of weeks, I had said every look, "I'm the new the new the new boss." But if you have any issue at all, come in and see me. And I was there one evening around six o'clock and this young guy appeared at my door. The door was open, as it always is. He's 21 or 22. He said, can I can I have a chat? Yeah, come on in. And I remember thinking as he came in the door, this is great because when I was 21, there's no way I would have gone down to the managing <laughs> partner today and gone in and said, I want to have a chat with you. But I always remember he, he came in and he said, um, got chatting for a second. And I said, you know, what's what's up? And he said, um, he said uh, look, I'm gay. And I said, look, I'm from Athlone, but I've met gay people before. And he laughed and I laughed. And yeah. But what he said next, he said, look, I'm comfortable being gay, but I get a sense that, you know, some people might feel it to conform to a type in here and they're not comfortable. And I remember going home that evening and it's probably, you know, one of three occasions in my career where I have in the wind, most of the night, looking at the ceiling, going, oh, wow, this is not the organization I want. I called him in the next day and I said, OK, what are we going to do about this? And he said to me, I think you should set up a Glee organization. And I said, no, I think you should set up a Glee organization. And I'll come along and I'll support, but this has got to come from the bottom. Hmm. And he did. And I went to the first couple of meetings. Within two years, we had a party on the morning of the uh, Gay Pride March, and we had over 200 people in it—members of the Lee and their allies—and it. Com- we went. We have a global people survey every year, and we went from having average scores in diversity inclusives to now where I've got people ringing me saying, "What are you doing in Ireland about diversity?" Because your your scores are completely off the scale. Mm. So it's like every person in an organization like ours is an ambassador for the firm. Every person can change the firm, and when our new people join us. I say to them, here's our culture, here's our values, and you have my absolute permission to call us out and call me out if you don't see us living those values on a day-to-day basis, if you don't see us living that culture. And I'm conscious as well. When I talk to CEOs or CFOs or board chairmen of a PwC, and I say what do you think of PwC? They don't talk to me about the brand and we don't produce any products. They don't talk. Mm. The first thing within 30 seconds and say, well, I base my view of PwC on Johnny or Mary mm. who looks after me or looks after my account. So every single person is that ambassador for the firm. And therefore, going back along with the way of going back to say, if you get the culture right and if you get everybody who believes in the same values as you and gets that sense of belonging, Mark, that they, they feel I belong, that is a, powerful powerful impetus for any organization.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think it's really tremendous how your actions speak louder than your words because you often hear of, you know, organizations that maybe have values and and mission and vision statements on the wall, but you're embodying it, leaving your door open, inviting people to give their feedback and being willing as a leader to listen, not just listen, but really hear and then take appropriate action.
0: Yeah, and and that listening point is really interesting because I remember, you know, as I evolved as a leader, I've been a partner now for 25 years. And as a partner, you lead a team. And then I had various roles in the organization. Then I led our tax business and now I lead the firm. But I remember once or twice in my career looking at people and and almost being in awe of their certainty that they had a belief that they were right all of the (laughs) times. And as I've grown older, I have a degree of insecurity and I have a degree of questioning. And I suppose earlier in my career, I would have thought that was a flaw. Later in my career, I realise it's an asset because, yeah, I I am decisive. I like to think my leadership style is I consult quite a lot. I don't think that's a consensus. You, You try and build consensus, but I'm not going for the median answer. I consult a lot because I need a lot of inputs. But you know, I remember once some uh, Derek Moore who used to be Secretary General in the Department of Finance saying, you know, the room tends to get quieter when it's a 50-50 call <laughs> and you've got to make it. So I like to think I'm decisive, but I take a lot of inputs. But I would have, a, like, I'm never afraid of saying I'm wrong. I'm never afraid of asking for challenge. I'm never afraid of changing my mind. And I think when I put together my leadership team back in 2015, it was interesting because half my leadership team hadn't voted for me for uh, as managing partner. That didn't bother me; they were the right people for the job. And in fairness, once the election was over, everybody coalesced around it. But the first meeting, I said we kind of laid down some ground rules, and I just said, "Look, we'll have our debates around the table, we'll have our rows around the table, but we'll we'll keep them around the table." And early on, I remember saying, "Look, I'm not sure what the answer is to this, or I don't know," and I think that engenders then a sense of people being happy to say they're not sure. And I think the crisis, the coronavirus crisis was great because it focused as a leadership team. We really had to sit down and say, we don't know where we're going here now, but I think leaders need to, just dis- it's its a slight balancing act. You need to display a certain level of honesty and vulnerability, but you also need to show leadership and decisiveness. And I think during the crisis, we kept our insecurities internal and we said, okay, we have a plan, let's execute on the plan. And we went out and said, look, We don't have all the answers, but here's our plan. And I think during the crisis, one thing that came out very clear is people wanted certainty. So we went out very early and said, partners will bear the brunt of this crisis. We won't have job cuts. We won't have pay cuts for as long as possible, as far as possible. And, you know, the feedback we got was, that's great. That gives us a level of certainty. And then if people are certain and they're more comfortable, they will give their all. So it was one of those, I, I learned so much during the last 18 months. I, I keep learning. <laughs> I And I worry if anybody's listening to this podcast, think this is Fergal you know, or coming down with tablets of stone here. I, I'm just sharing my own experience. I don't claim to be the oracle of leadership, but I have a lot of experiences that I'd love to convey to other people about mistakes I've made and, and things I've done well, but they may not, other people may have different views. That's fine.
1: Well, I think sharing our experiences is a tremendous way to, for all of us to learn, learn from others. I mean, I'm really taken by what you've said about being willing to be comfortable, being uncomfortable in terms of uncertainty, because one thing I've learned as a medical doctor is that the further you go on in your career, you do become more uncertain in the sense that while you do have much more experience and you have sort of wisdom from years of practice, you also know that things are uncertain and it's good to stay humble and it's good to stay open and uh, open to other possibilities and not to be always so absolutely dogmatically certain about about everything, because that's not the way the world works.
0: That's really interesting, Mark. And, And you're right. You become, you know, more like nobody could have imagined Corona. No. And the impact it would have. Now it's wired into our idea. This could happen. So you're right, the more life experience you have, the more you realize the ball can bounce many different ways. But as a counterpoint to that, I think the older you get and the more experienced you get, the greater perspective you have. Absolutely. And I think the things that might have kept me awake at 30. Um, at forty, might have caused me a couple of hours. You know, oh God, what I'm going to do? At fifty, I'd have said, okay, you know, here's how I'll approach it, and I put it into a box, and I move on to the next thing. So I think you're right. You you get a greater understanding of the way the world works, but I think you a, that gives you a greater perspective, and you can you can just from a point of view of mental health, even you get a better perspective.
1: Yes, and I mean that brings me on to you know health and well being. Obviously, that's something that you and PWC are very aware of and actively invest in.
0: Yeah. And, and, and even that's, Mark, evolved over over time because, you know, when we, this leadership team took over in 2015 and we, we kind of went through a process of refreshing our values, one of the five values we came up with was care. Mm. And honestly, when I started in the workforce, care would have been so far down the values of an organization. Like, you know, it was more a case of, you know, worked hard and you did it, it, care was well down. But definitely, you know, I say this to the young people, I have teenage kids myself, but Mm. I'm a 57 year old, white male, heterosexual. My only uh, area of diversity is I'm from the country. Right. So (laughs) I have no real conception of the life experiences that a 21 year old or 22 year old joining our office has. I have, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn because they're all clients of mine. But I have no real understanding of what they've lived other than the care you see through my own teenage children. But one thing I have observed is that the mental stresses and strain they face is totally different to what I would have faced as a teenager growing up and a young adult growing up. So when we started around care, it was around physical health. It was around and we, we had a great physical health program. Like, And it wasn't about everybody becoming Olympian athletes. It was about everybody doing a bit more physically than they were previously doing. And on the physical side, one of the great things we've sponsored in recent years is a five by five business team relay in the Phoenix Park. It used to take place in May. And uh, basically five people, a team of five, would each run a run of five kilometers each in a team way and there were 2000 teams from around dublin we had over 800 of our people ran five kilometers and some ran them in 16 minutes some ran them in 40 minutes some ran them in 24 minutes 23 seconds <laughs> and uh, but it was wonderful. Everybody just did that a little bit more. But the other thing, and the other side of it, which was, and if you ask me, you know, one of the things I'm proud of in my time in PwC, one of the things is we've destigmatized mental health. Because when I was growing up, admitting to mental health, there was, it was almost seen as a flaw. A flaw. You, you, you didn't do it. We've completely turned that around in PwC now. Mental health is just like physical health. You've got to take care of yourself. you got to look after it. And it should not be any sign of weakness or stigma. If you want to put your hand and say, I need some help. And we've introduced some fantastic mental health programs in the office. And people like Brezi have come in and we've run programs that people now are open to talk about mental health. And we've had partners talk about the mental health challenges they've faced. And really, again, maybe it's a function of where we are in the 21st century. But I was asked recently, you know, would a partner from the 1980s or 90s, would they still hack it today in the 2020s? And I said, in terms of servicing clients, absolutely. The, the client handling skills that a great partner in the 70s or 80s have would be absolutely on point today. In the same way as the the, the the patient handling skills of a doctor would be still very relevant today. I said they would be bewildered by the technology and they would be flattened by the pace because, and one has led to the other. I mean, when I was starting off uh, in tax, you got a letter in from the revenue with the three pages of queries and you thought, oh God, this is great. And you looked and you read it for a day or two. And then you wrote to your client, said, I need to come out to you. have got these three pages of queries in the revenue. And you went out the following week and you discussed this. And he said, I'll come back to you the following week now. And he'd come back and here's my first cut. And then you'd ask some question, come back another week later. And eventually you get a letter back from the revenue. Now, you know, all that would probably take place in a day or two. And I think the pace of modern society, and I see it in in some of our, our leaders around the firm, they feel the pace. And one of the things that I'm kind of actively talking about now with my leadership team is saying, we make it mandatory. Every two years for a partner to have a medical, you must have a medical every two years where somebody prods and pokes you and pulls on the rubber gloves and you get to a certain age. And uh, we say you, you've you got to do that. But I'm actually thinking now we need to make mandatory a partner resilience training every two years that we need. And the reason I want to make it mandatory, Mark, is I don't want anybody to have that residual feeling of oh god why, have, why am I been asked to go on this mental resilience issue? Just like physical fitness, just like physical check checkups, I want all our leaders to be as resilient as they can be. And you've got to work like physical fitness; you've got to work on
1: it. Well, I think that's really brilliant, uh, Virgil. And of course, you know, health, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolutely priceless asset. And health isn't just physical health; it's it's also mental health, emotional well being, having a strong sense of purpose. Understanding that the environments you spend time in can impact your well being. It's understanding how everything is so interconnected. And, you know, I, I have a term I use called living with vitality. And real vitality does incorporate all of those elements. And it really is about building that, as you said, that resilient mind and understanding that it's not static. Life has struggles and setbacks for all of us. You know, the next setback for you or me could be just around the corner. And that's why having that buffer of you know, emotional vitality
0: and a resilient mind can really support you. That is a fantastic philosophy, Mark, because it is like a reservoir. There are times it runs low. There are times you run ragged physically and mentally. And it's it's making sure your physical well and your mental well and your resilience well and your emotional well are all topped up on regular basis. And I, again... Played a lot of sports when I was young, like all people. And, uh, but I probably let my fitness go a bit. And I had a bad back in my 40s. And every six or eight months, it would flare up and I'd rub up against the disc. And I literally would, for six weeks, would be walking around like Quasimodo, bent to one side, not able to stand fully. And it came to a head in, in 2015 when I took over as managing partner and I was doing my first all hands. And the day before I was doing my first briefing, my disc went slightly moved and up against my nerve and I, I literally could not stand. I had to go out to the back rock clinic to Connor O'Brien, who's my back guy, and he gave me an injection. Do you and he gave me an injection, super guy. And he said you really need to get your back looked after. And we did an MRI scan and he said, your back is no better, no worse than anybody your age. What core work are you doing? And I said, well, I do a bit of running. And he said, no, no, what core work are you doing? And I said, well, I don't really do any. He said, well, what core work did you do as a kid? And I said, well, when I was a kid, you ran around the pitch 10 times and you were fit and that was it. He said, you need to work on your core. And by coincidence, at the very same time, the lady who runs our gym in PwC went down to my PA and said, I've seen Fergal walking around. Carol Kedney is her name. And she, for all those listeners, she's got a brilliant gym in in uh, Camden Street. And she said, send Fergal to me and I will sort him out. And I have not had a moment's problem. I do the gym religiously at 6.30 on a Tuesday and Thursday morning. I have not had a back problem. And I come out of my hour session with Carol and I am flaked but I feel a million dollars and I find myself singing or humming away. And I think that when people say to me, what one bit of advice you would give to me, I'd say stay agile, stay fit, stay supple. I'm probably fitter and stronger now than I was when I was 35. But that physical, I think then is the bedrock for mental resilience, emotional resilience. I think if you get the physical bit right, because when my back used to be at me, I'd have this buzzing nearly in my head. I'd be, I it would agitate me. My form wouldn't be great. But I think if you're physically fit and positive, I I think also if you have a positive mindset, the positive mentality helps.
1: Yes. Well, what's really interesting, the word emotion is spelled E-M-O-T-I-O-N and it's really E plus motion. And it's, (laughs) you know, E exercise plus motion, which is movement, equals positive emotion. So once you get up and move, uh, you do change your emotional state very, very quickly.
0: Well, it's... So you're you're right. It's funny, I, uh, for the first time in 20 months, Mark... I played squash on uh, Monday night and the Sandy cold squash club is literally across the road from me here. I hadn't played in 20 months. I went at eight o'clock, eight 15 in the evening. I played for an hour. I came out. I was completely spent, completely spent, but God, it felt great. And I, I actually, when I was coming home, I, I had a simultaneous thing. I am completely spent here, but God, it felt so good. And I, that, 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 that physical I, You know You tell me all about The endorphins I'm sure But it's hugely positive
1: Well I call It is hugely positive I call it the biochemical Cocktail of brilliance <laughs> um, <laughs> All of the, the serotonin And natural painkilling Endorphins And noradrenaline And dopamine And then this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle growth for your brain. It allows you to build stronger connections between your brain cells, grow new brain cells and simply stay, stay younger, stay more agile, stay healthier and simply live with more vitality. It's really a great pill to give yourself regularly for your your well-being.
0: It's, It's interesting now because my mother is 84 and mentally still as sharp as she ever was physically creaking a little bit now and I'm the and and she wouldn't have like you know I'm 57 now if my dad had said he was going off playing squash or going for a run when he was 57 I'd have thought he had lost his mind that generation probably didn't exercise much the reason I'd probably you know, have focused a lot over the last few years on fitness and and strength and flexibility is when I am 70 or 80, I do still want to be playing golf and, you know, walking around with purpose. I think it's really important, you know.
1: Well, I'm I'm delighted you mentioned your mother. I think she's a wonderful woman and, and a really inspirational person for so many in Ireland in terms of, you know, her enthusiasm and her commitment to public service and and indeed healthy aging. I mean, there's a lovely quote that says, if I knew I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself <laughs> along the way. So, <laughs> ah, yeah. I think it is a great investment. Frank, can I ask you about, you know, Obviously, with COVID now, people, you know, going back to the workplace, hybrid working. How do you feel that's going to pan out for your organization?
0: Are you the optimist? I'm a positive person by disposition. I think it's going to be great. And uh, it's funny, I think um, my, my working career will have spanned a whole generation where the, the workforce I joined, some partners were still called Mr. to when I finish it, it'll be cash or come in whenever you want. <laughs> um, I, I actually, on the positive side, I think it'll give more people more control over their lives. And in doing that, you will have more content employees. I also think it will attract back to the workforce people who might have felt, God, I can't work for PwC because it's a fairly full-on organization or I'll have to be in Dublin or I'll have to be, you know, I think it will attract people back who who maybe will have been in the workforce but took a time out for family reasons or something else or maybe wants to move down the country. I think where you operate from and ha- uh, will cease to be of direct relevance so you can operate from anywhere in the country. And the idea of working less than a full week will also be a very positive option. We've produced, we always had flexible working, but we'd never have carried out this experiment of saying, I oh, want well, everybody to go home for 18 months and see if we run the organisation remotely. And again, I, and I do want to call out our people here, we, on the on Friday the 13th of March, we closed our seven offices around the country. On Monday the 16th of March, we opened 3,300 offices around the country. Everybody was working from home. And that resilience and adaptability proved people can work from home. Our productivity that he stayed up in fact our people were happy and the surveys we've done people recognize the office is important for certain things but they would like a bit more control over their life so we've introduced hybrid working now i to be honest mark i think it will take a couple of months to actually the pendulum. I think that we already, even this week when I was in the office, the numbers are rising again. I think we'll have a pendulum. People will swing back to the office. Then they'll say, oh God, it wasn't too bad at home. And I think it's really early in the new year where we'll see how it'll play out. But for all the presentations I've done about hybrid working and for all the, the um, slide decks we've produced and frequently asked questions we've given all our staff, I, in every talk I've done to, to all our people, I say it boils down to three questions. When you're considering, can I work from home? There's three questions you should ask yourself. Does it suit my teammates? Does it suit my client? Does it suit our business? And if if you can honestly answer yes to those three questions, I don't mind where you work from. You can come into the office, you can work from home. But if you can't honestly answer yes to one of those questions, you need to be in the office or you need to be on the client site. But it's going to herald a revolution, I think, a positive revolution for employees and how they work. And I think it's, there are three great questions,
1: Virgil. And I think as well, it, it's it's sort of an active demonstration of of your your cultural value of listening to your people and making your people, active participants in the decision-making in terms of how things are going to be going forward. And that can be a real differentiator now when when there is sort of, they talk about this, you know, global war for talent talent, and that people are really looking at where they want to work and, and so on. You know, I'm sure I'm sure that's going to be an issue for you and PwC in terms of attracting and retaining talent going forward.
0: It it, it is. I mean, I think culture is great for creating a sense of belonging. Mm. But for somebody coming in, they they don't see that immediately. So, I think you're do right, but I think if if they're joining an organization where they they feel they have a greater control uh, over their their working life where they feel they will be stretched as you know, and, and develop as people. So I, I think that that yes, been a, been a modern organisation. I think culture is the bedrock, but been able to. We have fantastic offices there on, on the Keys. We've got a great gym and restaurant facilities and everything. But I I, I think uh, in this war for talent, people will say. Can I have can I have more control over my life? Can I can I work from athlone and work for an organization can I live in Athlone and can I have a, a healthy, productive life and still have the benefits of working for a big company in, in, in the capital city? I, I think they can. So it's the next few years are going to be really interesting in terms of recruitment. Absolutely.
1: It's obvious to me, Fergal, listening to you that you're really you really value your own health and you you're committed to staying healthy. Can I ask you, what's your gap? In other words, you know, I know as, as, as a doctor, no one's perfect, nor should they be. Every, we all have gaps. You know, what what do you think is the one thing you could do that could improve your health right now?
0: That's a good question because, you know, I do the gym twice a week. I do the odd run. and back playing squash again. I try and play golf during the summer months. Myself, my wife, walk a bit, though probably uh, did a lot more at the start of COVID. we we'll still do a bit right now. So, you know, I suppose for my age, I think I'm getting enough exercise. Mm. I drink moderately. I probably, I don't drink Monday, Thursday. I open a nice bottle of red wine on a Friday night that probably keeps me going for the weekend. Yeah. Um, I'm not a pinter or, or a... a mm. I think the one probably and it's partly mental health, but and it's partly leadership is carving out time, mm. time for reflection. Mm. And, and I mean, both from a business perspective and a health perspective, you know, your diary can, I have a brilliant PA, June and uh, June, uh, she's very good at carving out hours of my day. Every, weeks in advance, she'll carve out a block of two hours where she won't let anybody in. And sometimes that's time for me to just catch up but sometimes you get a chance to think about longer term issues and also reflect. So I, I one things I haven't got into yet, and I, I keep saying I will, but I have yet, is it's kind of not quite meditation, but mindfulness. I, I think there's an avenue there I haven't fully explored that I'd like to get into at some point.
1: Yes. And of course, something I talk about a lot is this idea called mindful presence, you know, giving yourself micro moments of stillness during your day. And I think that is so important as a leader to be able to still your mind regularly to dampen down the noise to enable you to really reflect on what's happening and and, and look forward to be the most effective leader you can be. And I mean leadership in, in its broadest sense in terms of leading your own life firstly and then in obviously in your organization and all your all your relationships.
0: And that, that's interesting that, that you mentioned that micro moments because I just read a very interesting article last week and it recommended a book which I've written down here somewhere I must get it on breathing. Yes. And the importance of breathing, both from almost a health perspective, but also getting you into that mindfulness state of. And I said, okay, that's something I need to read and just see if there's something there around that. There's,
1: there's such a strong connection between the breath and and How you feel, you know, you normally breathe maybe 12-15 times a minute, but if you intentionally slow your breathing down to four or five breaths for a minute, uh, a micro moment I use is called pause, a pause technique, and it's it only takes 60 seconds, but it's an incredibly simple technique to dampen the red button in the brain for stress, make you feel more responsive and less reactive, less irritated, more with a sense of inner peace, just to ground you in presence, and you can do it anywhere, anytime.
0: I think if you ask any leader, what would they like more of? Sometimes it's time, mm. and if you drill down to that, it's reflective time. It's time just to sit back and think and sort of, you know, one of the things we do as a leadership team is we go away for two days a year and we 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 make sure none of the business as usual is on our agenda. It's all forward looking, or, or we get a chance to really discuss issues. Not in a okay, we've got 15 minutes on this issue, we've got to reach a decision. It's where you really get to tease out the issues. And 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 that's probably the other side of that coin, that 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 time to sit back and really take an issue or an idea and and, and turn it around and look at it from its various angles in a calm, almost slow mo thinking slowly. Mm, <laughs> slow as fast. See, absolutely, you know, and that time is is. An incredibly valuable commodity. And I think then going back to something we said earlier is the older you get sometimes the thing, and, and, and the longer you go on as a leader, the things I would have really focused on at the start because I need to understand every little moving part of it. I'm so comfortable with now and, and I've given the, the role to somebody and they know what they're doing. I don't have to focus on that bit. I can I can save myself for the bigger the bigger issues they come up. And that's another bit of leadership. The longer you go on, your perspective changes. You you have more time to spend on the bigger issues.
1: Well, we're all constantly changing. And as you change the way you perceive the world changes as well. And it's really interesting, there's research from Harvard that shows that about 50% of the time, we're not actually present at all, we're distracted thinking about some meeting or something that's happened
0: yesterday. So to actually be able to still the mind is, is, a, is a great gift. And Mark, I would have to hold my hand up and say I'm absolutely guilty of that at times. I, um, My mind races sometimes, and it's racing ahead. And it's that ability to pull yourself back. There was something there you said that triggered a thought about perspective and leadership. But being grounded, being grounded the whole time is is hugely important. In never, you know, I, I, I say to people sometimes, you're never as bad as people say you are and you're never as good as people say you are. You know, the, the reality is somewhere. But you do need to be grounded. Uh, you know, I, 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 I get well grounded when I come home from my wife Maeve and my kids, Sam and Jen. They would always puncture a hole if they see any, any signs uh, of anything emerging. But one of the best pieces of advice I got when I took over as leader was from a lady called Danuta Gray. And Danuta used to lead O2 in Ireland. And uh, Danuta says to me, when you've got a leadership team, she said, it's very important that you have one person on that team who will call you out on your bullshit. And by that, she meant, you know, somebody who if they see you're losing the run of yourself will come in and say, what were you thinking of? Or, And again, I think I'm more than one of my own leadership team. But I think it's really important people that people feel comfortable saying to you, you 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 did that really badly you did that really wrong or that you 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 need to go back and apologize there or you need to you need to go revisit that. I think and it's great because the, the other occasion that has happened, people have felt, no, no, you, you've got to go back there. And the fact that they felt comfortable and the fact that I didn't feel personally threatened by them saying it, I think that, that that's in a great, you're in a sweet spot then.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, it comes back to what you've already said. It's creating that culture of authenticity,
0: creating an environment of openness, and then as a leader, staying humble. Yeah, I don't mean to sound big, it? but like... Why wouldn't you? I think there are great leaders that somehow, through a combination of luck, hasn't made it. I'm very fortunate. I have the best job in town. I work with brilliant people. I work with brilliant companies. I'm inordinately well-paid for the value that I add to society. But I've had to bounce the ball along the way. You know, what if I hadn't got well-mentored? What if there were two or three times that I seriously considered leaving the organization? What if my mentor at the time hadn't said to me, no, no, you've really got a good career? I mean, the story, that I've told it once or twice to people, in 1989... I, I was a young, wasn't even a manager. I was well down the totem pole in the organization. But I was involved in politics. I'd been involved in college and I was on the Fianna Fáil national executive at the time. And there was an election in the offing. I was 24, just turning 25. And I was approached quietly to see would I consider putting my name forward in a Dublin constituency to get on the ticket. And at the time, my mother would have been a minister, my cousins were starting to get involved and some of my peers were starting to get involved. And I remember seriously thinking about it. And in one of those sliding doors moments, uh, I talked, I mentioned Tom Grace earlier, and I was working with Tom. He was partners here, but we kind of got friendly in that. I remember saying, Tom, I've got this great opportunity. I, I um, might get to run the doll, and I won't get elected, but I get a Senate seat and who knows what will happen then. And he sat me down. And he said, look, he said, there's a fair chance you could run this organization. Or there's a fair chance you could run the country," he said. "But you can't do both, and you've got to decide what you want to do." And I remember going that night thinking, "Like I'm, I'm so far down the totem pole." But he saw something in me, He's, and I, I remember thinking, "Okay, you know what? I'll have, i would focus on their career," and I kind of gave up on the politics almost instantly. And I then, but well, what, ha- what would have happened to me if I? hadn't. I, you know, I might have got elected and I might have lost my seat. Then I, you know, so I, I think there's a bit of why wouldn't you stay grounded? Because you haven't, yeah, I like to get a bit of ability and a bit of talent, but there also has been a, a lot of help from a lot of people and a bit of luck along the way. So I staying grounded isn't some sort of virtuous thing. It's, you know, why wouldn't you be?
1: And you come across to me, Fergal, as being a very grateful person as well. You sound very grateful for the opportunities life has given you, oh, for the mentorship at- you received, for the opportunities to Grow and really develop as a person and a leader in your organization, in your life.
0: If if you could get into a time machine, Mark, and go back to my twenty-one-year-old self and say, in thirty-six years' time, you'll have had all these life experiences. You'll have done this, 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 and this. You'll be leading a fantastic organization. You'll be happily married, a couple of kids, uh, fully healthy. In of sound mind, I'd have said, where do I sign my soul over? You know, this is too good to be true. I, I am blessed. I, I think there's an attitude, though, as well. Like, have I made mistakes, Mark, in my life? Yes, I have. Um, but I don't have roadless traveled moments. I I make decisions and I move on. I don't go back and replay decisions I've made have they all been right? No, but you move on. And uh, maybe, uh, and again, you you know, my mom, she's an optimistic, very positive person. My my late uncle, Brian Lennon, was a very positive optimist. My cousin, in fact, also Brian Jr. was a very positive, I I think there's a family optimism gene that I have somewhere in there. But it's also a sense of things happen for a reason. And even as I've had setbacks, thankfully not too many i've always kind of you pull the duvet over your head that night and you go oh god but when you get up the next morning you think you know it happened for a reason and let's see what life brings next so it's not that i i have the odd regret but i don't go back and replay a major decision I've made in my life so what if i'd done something else you do it and you move on
1: well, as they say life uh, must be lived moving forwards but understood looking looking backwards back, back. Um, that's
0: pretty good you know
1: so finally fergal you know what three take-homes for a resilient mindset would you want to share with our listeners?
0: I think, first of all, and we've touched on this already, um, I think physical fitness. And I I don't mean Olympian standards, but just doing more than you've previously been doing. Yes, I, I think that unlocks so much of resilience. I think, and we've just talked about it there, that going forward mindset and some people hate the phrase we are where we are but because they think it's a very you're you're not learning from i think your point really made you you look through the prism of the past but you've always got to be moving forward not revisiting the decisions of the past so if you're physically fit if you're if you're constantly moving forward and i think there is a bit and i wouldn't claim to be the best about it uh, at all but there is a bit about talking it out. I have a guy I use as a coach. He is a former senior partner in the UK firm. So he understands my word. That he's retired a bit. And he's very good because he'll ask me very awkward questions that force me to explain why I've done or why I haven't done something. And I think having a coach who will ask the awkward questions and force you to explain why you're doing something, why you're not doing something... I think that talking out loud builds resilience. I think because it kind of forces you to address issues that otherwise you might try and bury in the back of your mind. So if you're physically fit. If you're constantly moving forward and not going backwards. And if you have a coach where you can you can talk out these things and, and unburden yourself almost, I think they build resilience in 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 people. Virgil, it's been fantastic having you on the doctor's chair. Keep leading.
1: Keep inspiring and keep moving forward. Virgil O'Rourke, thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much, Mark.
1: Thank you for listening to my podcast In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkro.com.